Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please stand up. We'll begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this night and the privilege that we have of gathering together as your children. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to be our teacher and guide this night as we are brought into a very interesting and very important subject for our time. We pray, Lord, for your blessing to flow both upon us and upon our teacher this evening, that it would truly be a time of great insight and great understanding. And so today, as we begin our time together, we pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father. Our speaker this evening is a senior fellow at the American Foreign Policy Council. A former director of Voice of America, Robert Riley, has taught at the National Defense University and has served in the White House and the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Mr. Riley is a member of the board of the Middle East Media Research Institute. He's written for the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Reader's Digest, the National Review, among many other publications. We are delighted to have him back here again at the Institute of Catholic Culture. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Robert Riley. Thank you. Enjoy the way. Thank you so much, Deacon. And ladies and gentlemen, what a great pleasure to be back with the Institute for Catholic Culture. As you can tell, I'm not a practicing Muslim as I'm enjoying an adult <laughs> beverage while we address this very difficult subject tonight. Let me begin with a, uh, a few advertisements. As Deacon Sabatino was so kind to say, uh, my book on Islam, The Closing of the Muslim Mind, is available for sale in, in the back of the room. But if you would like to know the general thesis of that in my talk, there is a monograph available on the internet for free called Islam and the West, the Theology Behind the History. So if you just Google Islam and the West with my name, this, this thing uh, will pop up and you could print it out if you so wish. And lastly, I tried to capture the drama of some of these theological issues in a dialogue. I imagined a dialogue between a recently deceased Muslim who appears before the throne of Christ. What a surprise. Christ, as far as a Muslim is considered, was a great prophet who was supposed to come back at the end of history to break the cross and kill all the pigs. 
That's his apocryphal mission. So the Muslim arrives and says, I'm surprised to see you here. I thought you were coming back at the end of time to break all the crosses. And Christ responds, no, I'm not coming back to break all the crosses. I was broken on the cross, which is why you're able to appear before me today. In any event, this modest attempt to dramatize the theological issues about which we'll be speaking this evening is also available on the Internet. It's called Dialogue between Christ and a Muslim. In any event, uh, Deacon Sabatino, what is the topic this evening? <laughs> it's, I think I, I suggested the theology behind the history, but what you put on the paper was the history behind the theology. <laughs> but it's kind of a chicken and egg situation, isn't it? Because there is history behind the theology, and of course there's theology behind the history. So I'm going to give you a dose of both tonight, both of the history and the theology, because they are inextricably intertwined. I'm going to begin with, uh, by reading you a prayer. Listen to this closely. O oh God, I ask of you a perfect faith, a sincere assurance, a reverent heart, a remembering tongue, a good conduct of commendation and a true repentance. Repentance before death, rest at death, and forgiveness and mercy after death. Clemency at the reckoning, victory in paradise, and escape from the fire by your mercy, O mighty one, forgiver. Lord, increase me in knowledge and join me to the good. Any problem? Would you feel comfortable saying that prayer? That is the prayer Muslims say at the seventh circuit around the Kaaba during the Hajj in Mecca. And the reason I begin with this prayer is to assure you that I am not here this evening to show any disrespect toward Muslims. I've spent 10 years reading in their theology and their revelation and how they understand themselves. And I've worked with Muslims for many years. Um, I think this prayer helps you to understand the spiritual aspirations in their own lives and that most of these good people are sincerely seeking the will of God and are therefore due the respect that should be given to anyone who, with what means they are given, are trying to do that. At the same time, respect never trumps the obligation to truth. And therefore, I will be saying some very difficult things this evening about Islam itself. My contention is that what we are facing today, and not just today, what we have faced since the 7th century, is essentially a theological problem. And unless we understand the nature of the theological problem, you will not be able to understand what is happening today in the Muslim world most particularly throughout the Middle East, in relation to the so-called Arab Spring. And that, I remember, Deacon Sabatino, is the topic for next week. <laughs> so no sneak previews. We, we're going to talk about what is taking place today and what might develop from it. But we can't do that until we first are grounded in the theological issues. How many of you read... Uh, Benedict XVI's The Regensburg Lecture. Some of you have. Good. Well, I think that contains within it the tightest 
encapsulation of the nature of the problem, we're faced in the contending ideas of who God is. So I'm just going to refer to it briefly at the beginning here. He made the point that not only is violence in spreading faith unreasonable, violence in spreading faith is unreasonable. Remember the dialogue he quoted between Manuel II Paleologos, the captured Byzantine emperor, and his Persian Muslim interlocutor? And so the emperor said that very thing. Violence in pursuing faith is unreasonable. But that a conception of God without reason leads to that very violence. If God is without reason, that conception of him can lead to the very violence Uh, in the spread of that faith. How is this so? Because this view of God is like the statement of Thrasymachus to Socrates, that right is the rule of the stronger. Right is not constituted by something inherent in the nature of things, which makes them good or evil or just or unjust, but it's defined by whoever is strongest to say what is right. So right is the rule of the stronger. And in the form of Islam, which I'll be discussing with you tonight, Thrasymachus's statement is elevated to a theological level. Why is Allah right? Because he's the strongest. It's as simple as that. It's uh, almost a form of divine positivism. But if God is right simply because of his power and pure will, only because of that, not because of any inherent goodness or justice in him, but just because he is omnipotent, uh, then there are no theological barriers between that conception of God and the endorsement of violence in spreading the faith. And we know that was the primary means by which Islam was spread historically, don't we? One of uh, Osama bin Laden's spiritual mentors was this Palestinian uh, thinker, Abdullah Azam who made the statement that terrorism is an obligation in Allah's religion. And Osama bin Laden repeated that statement from Adila Azam in his first video after 9-11, that using violence in spreading faith is an obligation if God is without reason and therefore acting unreasonably is not against his nature. See the theological problem we have at the get-go there? So, is God without reason? We know the Christian answer to that because we have the beginning of the Gospel of St. John and the beginning was the word, which in Greek is logos, which means reason or word. So, God introduces himself to us in Christian revelation as reason and who made everything through logos, through reason. Therefore, things are reasonable and we're expected to act reasonably, otherwise we act against God, who is himself reason. Before we go over the encounter between Islam and Christianity and the catastrophe that resulted from that beginning in the 7th century, and in continuing today in many ways, if you're following the news of what's happening to our dear Coptic brothers and sisters in Egypt and the attacks upon their churches and elsewhere in the Middle East, I should probably go over some of the revelation and some of the theological concepts within Islam that make Christianity so repugnant to them. We have to understand why we and what we believe are so offensive to Muslims. And I think we'll do that by 
How many of you have read the Quran? So some of you have suffered. Okay, a couple of you have. Therefore, what I'll do is, is we'll go from something you do know, which is the Bible, uh, and compare it to something you don't know, which for most of you is the Quran. Quran is a very, very difficult book uh, because it's not a narrative. It doesn't tell a story. There are stories in it, but it itself doesn't have a beginning, middle, end. It's just arranged according to the size of the chapters and so forth. Well, one of the most startling things that you would uh, find in the Quran, were you to read it, are its accounts, and there's more than one, of creation. Muslims believe that God created ex nihilo, just as we do. He created from nothing. But they do not believe, and the one thing that you just will, will shout out at you when you read their accounts is that we are not made in the image and likeness of God. That's a big one. You know, my contention is that um, our civilization is based upon Genesis, in which God says, I made man in my own image. And we are reminded throughout our scriptures that this is the case. I'll just give you a little taste of this from the book of wisdom. For God formed me to be imperishable. The image of his own nature, he made me. The image of his own nature, he made me. And then we know from uh, St. John again, now we are children of God. Not only are we made in his own image, but we, we have a familial relationship with God. Father began with the Our Father, which you know was in Aramaic. Our Lord spoke Aramaic. And the word he used was Abba, which doesn't really mean our Father. It's closer to Daddy. So we're saying our, to this omnipotent, transcendent God, we're saying our Daddy? The, the, the implication of intimacy there between God and man is simply enormous. And then... Um, we also read this startling statement from St. John again. What we shall be later is not yet clear. But when we see him, we shall be like him. For we will see him as he is. Like whom? We shall be like whom? Like God? We will be like God. And I'm sure in Mass today, in the offertory, you all heard the priest say, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. Share in his divinity. I, I can't possibly express to you how shocking to Muslims every one of these statements is. The level of presumption in them that we are in the image of God, we have a familial relationship with God, that we are going to become God-like and share in his divine life is blasphemous beyond belief for them. The two doctrines on which we need to concentrate in Islam are tanza, which, which means God's utter and complete and total transcendence. God is infinitely beyond us in such a way as that there is nothing like him, there is nothing unto him, there is nothing comparable to him, certainly not you or me. Do not compare anything to God. Without asking how and without comparing is one of the most important sayings in Islam. Don't ask and don't compare. Uh, the other doctrine is Tawheed, which means the unity of God. Muslims are radical monotheists. 
And of course, Islam arose in the Arabian Peninsula, which was generously polytheistic. In the Kaaba, where Muhammad began, there were some 360 gods and goddesses arrayed. And when Muhammad was through, they were all gone, and uh, only Allah was left. So Tawhid, this radical monotheism in Tanza, this utter, total, infinite transcendence of, of God from man. Since you can't compare anything to him, by the way, you can't know him either, can you? How, how could you get to know someone who's not like anything? He's not unlike his creation. In other words, you can't get to know him from his creation because nothing, nothing is like him. Okay, so we've, we've covered that one. There's no, um, you're not made in the image and likeness of God. Of course, what is the image and likeness? Now, reason? Yeah, reason. And what else? Free, free will, reason and free will. The next thing you would notice that would leap out at you in your perusal of these creation accounts is that there's no original sin. There's the first sin, and indeed, Adam and Eve get thrown out of paradise for it. But it, by nature, is not any different from the second sin or the third sin. Uh, Allah, being all-merciful and forgiving, will accept the repentance, which he did from Adam, or he won't. It's up to Allah. But there is no original sin. There's no cataclysmic dislocation in the relationship between God and man that sunders all creation. Remember, St. Paul says all creation groans. Do you know why there was no cataclysmic dislocation from that first sin? Because there was no relationship to begin with. So there was no need to restore it since it wasn't there. What relationship could this little finite man have with this infinitely transcendent God? So he's punished or he's forgiven and, and we move on. Now, how does this compare with uh, Genesis? We know about the cataclysmic disruption. We know about the expulsion. We know about the entrance of death into life. We know about pain and suffering. And we also know this, that man, having offended, indeed, an omnipotent, transcendent God, has nothing within his means to make expiation. What does man have that's possibly worth enough to repair the damage he has done in breaking his relationship with his creator? Nothing. He doesn't have anything that's that valuable. So things look pretty bad for man. What could he possibly hope in since he can't restore this relationship? Well, then we learn in Revelation as it develops that God says to him, you can't do this, but I can do this for you. I'll send somebody to do this for you. I will send a Messiah, a Savior. And then we begin learning as Revelation develops what this person might be like and what he might do suffering servant, etc. And this, of course, is the beginning of salvation history. And in the West, we have secularized this notion of salvation history, that is, of a, of a beginning, a middle, an end, and the final judgment, and the parousia, and etc., uh, into history itself. The notion that time begins, it is linear, it's not circular, we're not in a loop in a world of uh, eternal matter, where everything that can happen happens and then it ha starts all over again. That's what the ancients believe. That's what the ancient Greeks and Romans believe. Time was not linear. It just was looped. And therefore, the time, we, there was a sense of futility in the ancient world because of this. This is exploded by Genesis, by Jewish and Christian revelation. 
and therefore hope is restored. This doesn't exist in Islam. There's, there is no salvation history in Islam. And therefore, there was no salvation history to secularize into history. So within Islam, there's really no idea of history as a uh, notion of progress that we possess in the West. They have a different uh, notion of time, even. There are no clocks in mosques. Um, so that's another big one, no original sin. Now, who names the animals in uh, Genesis? Adam names the animals. God prays the animals before him, and he names them, and they are what he names them. Adam has this power to name things. It is a great power because naming is the means by which we make reality intelligible to us, as the great German theologian Joseph Pieper taught. Through words, by naming, reality becomes intelligible. That's the power of our reason to to apprehend reality only through naming. If you can't name something, can you know it? If some strange creature stampeded through this room and I said, what's that? What would you say? I don't know. We don't have a name for it. So naming is knowing. Now, who names the animals in the Quran? Good for you. God. Man in the Quran does not have the power to name. Allah names the animals for man. This may seem like an insignificant detail, but it's not, as we shall later see. It's even worse than that. Right after this point in the Quran in which God names the animals for Adam, the angels start complaining to Allah, saying, what, what, why have you made man from this clump of mud when all he's going to do is create mischief in your creation? So they're challenging Allah. He's not too happy with that response. And he says, in effect, oh, yeah? If you think you're so smart, you tell me the names of the animals. And the angels respond by saying, oh, you who know all, Allah, you know that we do not know the names of the animals. We only know what you tell us. Angels, pure spirits, pure intelligences, have not the means to apprehend reality on their own. Their minds are incapable of making reality intelligible to themselves through naming. They know only what is revealed to them by Allah. You shall see how enormously significant that point is when we get to Islamic epistemology. Now... <clears throat> Let me, let me briefly discuss. There are, there are many other comparisons that, that we could make here, and maybe we'll be able to fit a few of them in, but let, let me speak of how Islam regards our revelation and how it regards its own revelation, because that's one of the reasons they find us repugnant. Here is the way the Quran presents this issue. Allah says, first I gave my rules to the Jews, I had a covenant with the Jews. They had the Holy Land. They had the commandments. And what did the, what did the Jews do? And here in the fifth surah come these damning words for which the Jews are cursed forever. Allah says, they changed my words. 
the Jews had the temerity to change God's words. Now, even in our understanding of our own revelation, we would consider that a grave offense. It's much worse for Muslims because they think the Quran is the literal word of God that has existed in eternity, co-eternally with God on the Umm al-Kitab, the, the mother of the book, in, uh, in, with, with Allah. In other words, the Quran is not a historical document revealed in time to a certain people. It's not contingent on a culture or language. It's, it's existed forever with God. Allah, he, he speaks Arabic. I'm glad no one laughed because that's not a joke. I mean, that's why if you, con- if you convert or rather revert to Islam, you will have an Arabic name. And if you become a Muslim, you will pray in Arabic. That's the only acceptable form of prayer is in Arabic. That's why hundreds of millions of Muslims throughout the world pray in a language and in words they, they don't understand. Reminds me of me in grade school praying in Latin. You know, I didn't know it. Uh, because that's the only legitimate, because God, God speaks Arabic. And um, so therefore, changing one of his words is all the greater an offense, as you can imagine. Changing something that has existed co-eternally with God. So then Allah says, the Jews changed my words, so I did it again. I gave it to the Christians. He just repeated the original revelation, gave it to the Christians. And what did they do? They came up with this cockamamie idea that I have a son. I have no son. The oldest extant uh, writing or record of Islam is the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. And there inscribed on it is, there is no one beside me. I have no son. If you ever want to hear anything repeated ad nauseum in Islam, as a reflection of Tawheed, it's, I have no son. There is no one beside me. And so Isa, or Jesus, in the Quran, who appears fairly frequently, always does so uh, with saying, I never said that. I never said I was your son. I would never say that. And of course, it's explained in the Quran, Jesus is a great prophet, and therefore Allah, being the God of power that he is, would never allow a great prophet to suffer. So Jesus was not uh, crucified. That was someone else, or a shadow. But it was not he. Uh, They have no problem with the virgin birth, by the way. And they have no problem with the ascension. But uh uh-uh, no crucifixion, and obviously no incarnation. A way for you to, again, grasp the significance of the Quran is that uh, this is a wonderful notion I got from Dr. Gerl Falkowitz, a German theologian, who said, we Christians have the notion of incarnation, God become man, and the Muslims have in liberation, in liberation, God becoming book. That the Quran serves you know, a parallel function in Islam uh, to Christ in Christianity. So therefore, the book, the Quran, as it is today, is the exact same thing that's up in paradise with Allah. I mean, in Arabic, exactly the same thing. Therefore, it's sacred. Therefore, for you to drop it, to step on it, to use it as toilet paper or something, as they accused some of our troops of doing, is, is an un, it's like desecrating the Eucharist. Sorry? Yeah, it's the Umm al-Khattab, the mother of the book. The mother of the book. So... You mean up there in the Umal Kitab? Does it have pages? No, I, I don't think so. Uh, after all, the Quran was first written on animal bones, you know, scratched out on animal bones and, and papyri and so forth. So, 
I'm not sure they had a notion of book. There were no books. The Quran is the first book in Arabic. So that's what the Christians do. They came up with this blasphemous idea that I have a son or that there's a trinity. This is polytheism. This is a terrible offense. This is the principal offense against the Tawheed of Islam, of the radical monotheism. And they're most particularly upset. Do you know how the Trinity is defined in the Quran? Father, Son, and Mary. I'd be offended too. Um, but since it's in the Quran, that's what Muslims think, we think the Trinity is. And where did Muhammad get his material? How could he possibly come up with that one? Syrian priest? No, actually, no, no. There, there was a, a heretical sect up in northern Arabian Peninsula contemporaneous with him called the Coloridians who apparently had this strange idea. And uh, in one of his trade caravans, he must have bumped into some Coloridians and gotten this bizarre idea. So therefore, the Quran then says, all right, I'm going to do it one more time through Muhammad. That's why he's the seal of the prophets. Allah is saying, this is the last time. Out of his mercy and, and so forth, he's, he's going to give us one more break. And what does he reveal in the Quran? Not himself, but his rules. And the general picture is, if you obey these rules, he may take you to paradise. And uh, if you don't obey the rules, he'll probably send you to hell. And if you're a woman, by the way, you'll probably end up there anyway. Because that's what it says. Hell is mainly full of women. Um, so I, I, th I hope that gives you some idea of why uh, Muslims are so antithetical to Christianity. It, it gravely offends their notion of Tawheed. It greatly offends their notion of Tanza. And these are the two principal doctrines to which they subscribe. So we are polytheists. We are idolaters. And in the treatment of Christians uh, in Islam, while the Jews were made to wear a clothing patch with an ape on it, uh, we Christians were made to wear a clothing patch with a pig on it because we're, we eat pigs. Pigs are unclean animals. That's why Christ is going to come back and kill them all when he breaks the crosses. Now that I've given you just a little outline of that kind of thing, maybe we should uh, return to some history. What did this produce in terms of behavior when Islam... Uh, encountered Christianity when it thundered out of the Arabian Peninsula in the 7th century and conquered, of course, the whole Persian Empire and huge, huge parts of the Byzantine Empire. As you probably know, in the 7th century, the entire Middle East and North Africa uh, were Christian, were, were Catholic. There were 700 bishops in North Africa alone. How many do you think are left today? Well, we do know we've got 700 bishops just in North Africa. In the 1070s, there were two bishops left. We know this because they, made, they sent an appeal to Gregory VII, saying, please send another bishop to North Africa so that we can have apostolic succession down here, because you need three bishops for that. Well, what happened? How could you have had this overwhelmingly Catholic culture and civilization even over that period of time from the 7th century to, to the 11th, dwindle to that extent. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit here. 
We know that by 650, the Muslims had, of course, conquered all of Arabia, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, and Egypt. By the early 700s, the empire stretched from the fringes of China and India in the east to North Africa and Spain in the west, as well as their excursions into France. What was the Muslim attitude toward the people whom they conquered? All right, you, uh, there were, you had the choice, if you were an infidel, uh, to convert or be killed. That was it. If you were a person of the book, which meant a Jew or a Christian, you had a third option. And that was to become a dimi, a subject one, and to pay the jizya tax, which was a poll tax, uh, and admit yourself in subjection to the Muslims, who would then grant you your property and your life in this agreement so long as you held to certain rules, among which were you would not build any new churches, you wouldn't repair your old churches, you wouldn't have a cross on the exterior of your church, you would show no outward manifestation of your faith through a cross, you would not build a house higher than a Muslim, you would make way for a Muslim, you couldn't ride a horse or a camel, these were noble animals, you had to ride donkeys, and on your donkey you couldn't have a leather saddle, you could only have a wooden saddle. Little alterations in life like that. Now, a couple of years ago, I met a Syrian Jesuit who has lived in uh, Egypt for many, many decades, Father Henri Boulad, who told me that each year in Egypt there are 20,000 fewer Christians. Uh, and this is before the real rough stuff started. He, I met him several years ago. Uh, just through pressure. pressure. They either leave uh, or through pressure they convert. So he said, Christianity is going to disappear from Egypt. Of course, it's disappearing throughout the Middle East. Uh, that's today. Can you imagine what it was like then? Well, you don't have to imagine. This is one of the most spiritual, devastating books I have ever read in my life because it gives a very detailed graphic account of what happened to Christianity under Islam. It's written by a woman, Bat Eor, who is a Jewish Egyptian woman uh, who lives in Europe. That's her pen name. And the name of this book is The Decline of Eastern Christianity Under Islam, From Jihad to Dimitud by Bat Eor. That's Y-E apostrophe O-R. Um, not only does this give the history of the suppression, the forced conversions, the pressures, uh, the slaughter, the looting, the rape, etc., Perhaps the most distressing part is the last third of this book, which provides contemporaneous accounts of Christians, of bishops, of others at the time who are recounting their distress and of what's being done to them. And if you've ever heard cries from the heart, I mean, this is so hard to read. It's such difficult material because it's rough enough you begin asking, where, where's God for these people who uh, suffered so? and who were uh, wiped out or forcibly converted. Uh, I think that to understand why this is, uh, has happened, I'm going to refer to a Muslim who, who can tell us. He is a, one of the leaders of 
intellectual reform in Islam in uh, Europe. A very interesting man. By the way, when uh, Allah gave his, uh, his farewell, he was said to have said the following, quote, I was ordered to fight all men until they say there is no God but Allah, unquote. So here is, a, this is a Syrian, originally a Syrian intellectual of very uh, great aristocratic provenance in, in he comes from a family of great learning and distinction in Syria. At its core, Islam is a religious mission to all humanity. Muslims are religiously obliged to disseminate the Islamic faith throughout the world. Quote, we have sent you forth to all mankind, unquote. Now, there are, there are two means through which Islam can perform this divine mission it has to bring the whole world into subjection to Islam, and that's dawah. Dawah is evangelization. We're Christians. We have a duty to evangelize, so we shouldn't have too hard a time understanding dawah. If that doesn't work, jihad. Uh, Basam Tibi continues. If non-Muslims submit to conversion or subjugation, this call, dawah, can be pursued peacefully. If they do not, Muslims are obliged to wage war against them. In Islam, peace requires that non-Muslims submit to the call of Islam, either by converting or by accepting the status of a religious minority, dimi, and paying the imposed poll tax, jizya. World peace, the final stage of dawah, is reached only with the conversion or submission of all mankind to Islam. Muslims believe that expansion through war is not aggression, this is an important notion. Not aggression, but a fulfillment of the Quranic command to spread Islam as a way to peace. The resort to force to disseminate Islam is not war, harb. Harb is the, is the Arabic word for war, harb. It's not harb, a word that is used only to describe the use of force by non-Muslims. We're engaging harm in harb when we fight them, but they're not. Islamic wars are not hurub, the plural of harb, but rather futuat, or acts of opening the world to Islam, opening the world to Islam, and expressing Islamic jihad. Do you know the way that works? There's a jurisprudence to jihad, by the way, that's very detailed. And, and many of the terrorists today violate the jurisprudence of jihad. Uh, what you're supposed to do, here's part of the just war theory, in Islam. Uh, I offer you Islam. What do you say? Okay, I offer it again. What do you say? Yeah. What, what, now, okay, third time I offer you Islam. What do you say? Yeah. Ah, you've just committed an act of aggression. So, that, no, no, this is the jurisprudence of the thing. You are offered Islam three times, and after your third refusal, uh, they are justified in attacking you because it's an act of aggression by you because you are resisting the futuhat, the opening of the world to Islam. Relations between Dar al-Islam, the house, the abode of Islam, and the home of peace in Dar al-Harb, all you who refuse, you're the Dar al-Harb, um, the world of unbelievers nevertheless takes place in a state of war, according to the Quran and to the authoritative commentaries of Islamic jurists. Unbelievers who stand in the way creating obstacles for the dawah are blamed for this state of war, for the dawah can be pursued peacefully if others submit to it. In other words, those who resist Islam 
cause wars and are responsible for them. Um, as Bad Eor says in, in this book, any obstacle put in the path of Dawa is considered a causus belli. So that um, can give you some sense of the relations uh, between Christianity and Islam and how they conceive of them from within Islam and how they regard us in this way. Now, I just had finished for the Faith and Reason Institute about a year ago a study of Catholic-Muslim dialogue. Is there such a thing? It's, it's something that since Paul VI, the church has tried to pursue, obviously with limited success. But it was very interesting for me to study this issue uh, because it revolves around this. That is the status of reason, respectively in Christianity and in Islam. To put it in a very brief way before Deacon Sabatino flashes another time card at me, <laughs> Thomas Aquinas was approached by his fellow Dominicans, and they, they asked him, how are we supposed to deal with these Muslims? And St. Thomas responded saying, well, we can't deal with them from their revelation because we don't accept it. And we can't deal with them from their revelation because we don't accept it. Therefore, we must treat them as natural men. What did he mean by that? He meant reason. Therefore, what we must do is reason with them. However, that only works if they accept themselves as natural men, right? If they accord to reason the same status as we do, as being capable of apprehending reality and arriving at the truth of things. In fact, what Muslims believe is that their religion is the din al-fitra, by which they mean the, the religion natural to man. You know, we have in Western philosophy all these uh, conjectures about what the state of nature, what was man in the state of nature, right? The state of nature for Muslims is that everyone was a Muslim. Adam was a Muslim, Abraham was a Muslim, uh, Jesus was a Muslim. Uh, you were all born Muslims and most likely were apostatized by your parents. I told the cardinal that once. I said, your eminence, you were born Muslim and your mother apostatized you. You should have seen the look he gave me. I'm not a happy man. So in that sense, you do not convert to Islam. You revert to Islam because that's the natural state of man. Now, in the great Regensburg lecture, and everybody, forget my book, go out and get the Regensburg lecture. In fact, you can get it online. It's, it's one of the greatest things that that great pope did. In it, he talks about the crisis in the West and in Islam as being the same. The de-Hellenization of our civilization, meaning our loss of reason, the gift of the Greeks, philosophy, uh, and he says, well, we, have, we are losing that through moral relativism and everything we've been undergoing since the French Revolution. Islam was de-Hellenized for another reason. First of all, did you know it was ever Hellenized? Well, that's, that's what my book is about. The Closing of the Muslim Mind is about the de-Hellenization of Islam. But of course, it begins with its Hellenization first. Because when they conquered uh, these vast areas of the Christian world, they encountered Christian apologetics, 
that were infused with Greek philosophy. And they, they encountered Greek philosophy in the remaining centers of Hellenic learning. So for the first time, the questions occurred to Muslims, what is the relationship between reason and revelation? What's, what's the relationship between reason and God? Can we come to know God through our reason? Uh, is it legitimate to ask these kinds of questions or are they forbidden? And they needed their own apologetics to answer the Christians with whom they were arguing. So the first, absolutely first school of Islamic theology called the Mutazilai came up with this general explanation. We have reason as a grace from God. We are to use our reason to examine the order of creation, which is rational, through which we come to know him. We are given by God the ability with our reason to come to know what is good and what is evil, what is just and unjust. Because God has also given us free will uh, with which to choose. And he would not hold us accountable for our free choice if he had not also given us the ability to distinguish between good and evil. And all men have this, not just Muslims. All men have the ability to apprehend reality and understand the moral character of behavior and are therefore obligated to choose what is good. Sound familiar? This was a product of the influences of of Greek thought and Christian apologetics upon Islam. This was the period of Hellenization in which they were ingesting Greek philosophy, uh, embraced by the great Caliph al-Mamun who created the House of Wisdom in Baghdad, made the great translation center of the Greek texts uh, into Arabic. And the sponsorship of the first Arab philosopher, Al-Kindi, by Al-Mamun, he made it a state doctrine. Free will was a state doctrine in Islam. Can you imagine? Well, you can imagine it was contentious. Otherwise, he wouldn't have had to make it a state doctrine. And he also made it a state doctrine that the Quran was created, that it didn't exist co-eternally with God, Yes, the word of God, but it was revealed in time at a certain place to certain people in a certain culture in a certain language, and therefore it was contingent on history. It wasn't an ahistorical document. It was historic. Therefore, the, the breadth of interpretation opened way out uh, that you didn't have to understand that it was a literal thing. In fact, the next, the, these people, the Mutazilites said, man's first obligation is to reason. Not to submit, but to reason. Why? Because the existence of God is not self-evident. Therefore, you must engage in speculative reason to come to the knowledge of God's existence. And once you've done that, then the question can arise, has God spoken? And if he has spoken, uh, by by what criteria are we to examine the claims to revelation? And once again, the Mutazilites said, reason. Is it reasonable? Would God require of us a belief in something that denied our reason when it's our reason he has given us to come to know and understand him? So they said, no, he wouldn't do that. Therefore, they went through the Quran and everything that contradicted reasons, they said, this can't be meant literally. You must be bring what is against reason into accord with reason. Does that sound familiar? That lasted for three caliphs, and then they were overthrown by a contending school of theology that denied every one of those premises. It denied that man can come to know good and evil. 
It said man can only know, guess what? Thank you. He can only, just like the angels, we only know what you told us. So they can only know what God says in his revelation, the Quran. That's the only knowledge of good and evil. There's no independent moral philosophy. There's no Aristotle's, the ethics. There's only the Quran and, and the Hadith. You cannot come to know good and evil. Uh, therefore, your only path to salvation is to know Islamic jurisprudence. And then you have another problem in their denial of cause. And God is omnipotent in this extreme. He's the only cause of things. He's not just the first cause. He's the only cause. That means there's no cause and effect in the natural world. Everything is done directly by God. See that right there? What happened? God made the pen fall. You people are very fast tonight. <laughs> if you had said it was gravity, you would be committing the sin of shirk, which is comparing something to God. So God does that. Do you see that creates certain problems for uh, free will? And for science, right. If it's, it's considered um, shirk, blasphemous, to look for natural laws, uh, then you're not going to look for the natural laws. And so the theological and metaphysical underpinning for science is removed in this. In the Asherites, I'm, I'm talking about the Asherite theological school, which <clears throat> won. They didn't win the argument. It's just the caliph changed his mind and suppressed the Mutazilites. And this Asherism became the orthodoxy of Islam. It is the majority theological school in Sunni Islam today. By the way, I've only been talking about Sunni Islam tonight. I should have warned you at the beginning. The Mutazilites said, you must, um, I, I, I'm not going to, uh, let me just find this statement and I'll close by reading it to you. Here we go from the Mutazilites. It is obligatory for you to carry out what accords with reason. It is obligatory for you to carry out what accords with reason. That could be right out of the Regensburg lecture. Why is it obligatory to do what accords with reason? Because God is reason. To behave reasonably is the definition of moral behavior. What did the contending Asherite school say? There is nothing obligatory by reason. Nothing. Or no obligations flow from reason but from Sharia. Only from revelation. Since that is the majority theological school in Sunni Islam today, how are you going to have a conversation? They don't accept themselves as natural men in that sense. And reason does not have the status to come to apprehend the truth of reality. Therefore, there's really nothing to, to reason about in that respect, which makes the dialogue somewhat difficult. Well, what I hope I've done tonight is just lay the groundwork with these theological issues and some of the history in preparation for what we're going to talk about next week, for those of you who haven't suffered enough and will come back, <laughs> on the Arab Spring. Here's one sneak preview. Remember the predominance of the Asherite school. Nothing obligate, no, no obligations from reason. Therefore, the principle of Islamic jurisprudence, <clears throat> and you must understand as a result of this, Islam is just a juridical religion. It's all rules. Everything you could possibly conceive of doing is categorized in one of five ways in Islam, from halal to haram, from forbidden to obligatory, etc. 
And you better know which one uh, it is because your salvation depends on it. But the rule of Islamic jurisprudence is this. Reason is not a legislator. In other words, you get, you get it from the, the, the law. But re, the law is not a product of reason. Reason is not a legislator. Now, if that's the principle of your jurisprudence, that reason is not a legislator, why have legislatures? See the problem? Welcome to the Arab Spring. Any, do we have time for questions, Deacon? Yes, we'll just take a, a quick break. Okay. Thank you very Thank much, you. Professor. Thank you. Wonderful presentation, Mr. Riley. All of these things that you have said, how much of this is known by the everyday modern person or does this happen when a young person gets into a Muslim school and starts being radicalized? How much of this is known by the average Muslim on the street? That's an interesting question. Uh, most Muslims uh, have to live in the real world even though they have this Rube Goldberg metaphysical disaster that denies causality. and uh, So they function at, at some level, but their culture is dysfunctional and they're profoundly affected and harmed by that. Now, if you ask them why, uh, they would most likely say to you, that it's because they've left the path of God. And therefore, they're radicalized to return to the path of God in the way in which it's presented to them by these Salafists or the Al-Qaedists and others. You see, for them to understand the nature of the problem afflicting them, they would have to see that it is a theological problem and go back and revisit these questions from the ninth century. And the Muslim intellectuals with whom I work and was in Rome with, by the way, just in December at a private meeting with a group of them, uh, they talk about these things. One of them told me it was very, very poignant. He said, I felt I was in a theological prison and I couldn't get out. And he said Arabic was part of the prison. And until I learned French, I couldn't escape. Uh, and, and then I did. And so we had a conversation together privately. And I told him... in. in the four French that I can speak, that faith must be uh, reasonable, that faith and, and religion must be compatible in this. You can't, I mean, all of you would yawn if I said that to you. He got so excited, it was unbelievable. To him, that was tremendous. Yeah, that's the real futuhat. That's the real opening. Now, if I went to a Muslim on the street and said, are you an Asherite or are you a Maturidite? Yeah, I'd have as much success if I stopped someone at the McLean Bible Church and said, are you an Augustinian or are you a Thomist? <laughs> so the man on the street, you know, you, you, wouldn't, uh, you, you wouldn't get that level of... Most Muslims don't know what I have taken you through some of tonight. But, the, but the, however, they are, they are subject to it and they have to live by this interpretation of their faith that's predominated, which is why... Uh, they have been in, sort of infantilized uh, by it. In other words, they're told that they're, they're, they can't, through their reason, know what's good and bad. Therefore, they better get a ruling from a qadi or a mufti who that can tell them, you know, I'm thinking of doing this. Will I? Is that permitted or not? 
By the way, they never say, is this good or bad? Is it permitted or forbidden? Or in which of the five categories does it appear? Therefore, there's an enormous fatwa industry in places like Egypt, where hundreds of thousands of fatwas a month, live fatwa TV programs, dial a fatwa, on the phone service where the, phone, the company for an extra charge will connect you with a mufti or a qadi, and you explain your problem, and he will give a ruling. And the, the famous Egyptian Jesuit, Father Samir Khalil Samir, gives examples of these. Of course, I've seen examples of these. Uh, one, one he mentions is a woman uh, calls in and says, I'm in my apartment in a bath. There's a dog in my apartment. May I get out of my bath? How good for you. Have you been reading fatwas? That was exact. I mean, we wouldn't, you wouldn't see a problem with that, would you? I mean, that's, but the, the answer was, if the dog is a male, you can't get out of your bath. If the dog is a female, you can. Or, you know, if, if I'm saying my prayers and a woman walks by, do I have to repeat my prayers? Or if a black dog goes by? Yeah, the black dog might be Satan, and the woman is, well... Yes, you have to say your prayers again. <laughs> or the most infamous one several years ago in Egypt, by the head of the Hadith department in Al-Azhar. Al-Azhar is the premier institution of learning in the Arab world, Al-Azhar, that President Obama said led to the Renaissance in the West. This is this great Al-Azhar. The head of the Hadith section, which the Hadith are the second most authoritative source of revelation next to the Quran. So this is not an assistant professor. This is a big deal. He is asked by this person, I work in an office alone with a woman who is not related to me. In Islam, this is haram. You're not supposed to do that. Is there any way I can regularize the situation so that I continue working without doing something that is haram? And the fatwa was yes. Yes, if, if the woman breastfeeds you uh, three times that will create a familial relationship with her and you can continue working together. <laughs> now, there was an uproar in Egypt. To the credit of the people in Cairo, there was an uproar. He was made to withdraw the fatwa. Uh, but then only uh, two years later, Saudi Arabia gave a gloss on this fatwa on the same subject, demonstrating their sophistication, that the woman doesn't literally have to breastfeed the man. She can use a breast pump, and he just has to drink the milk. <laughs> Again, you'd say, where, where are they getting the material? And this is, goes back to an incident with Mohammed dealing with the problem of a woman who had an adopted son who had reached the age of puberty. And so she asked Mohammed, you know, I, now that he's reached the age of puberty, I can't be unveiled in my own house. And he came up with this as the solution to the problem. So that's how that came about. So yes, this stuff, it, it's part of the dysfunctional culture. Sorry that was so long, Deacon. I saw you getting nervous. Uh, is there a, a vital discrepancy between Islam and Western democracy? You're trying to trick me into giving the talk next week. That will be the subject of next week. But the tip-off was the principle of Islamic jurisprudence that reason is not a legislator. How do you get from there to democracy? You've mentioned See, I can give a short answer. <laughs> <laughs> that, 
you, you've mentioned um, Islamic intellectuals a couple times now in your talk. Is there a community of intellectuals that are willing to deal with reason, uh, perhaps not to the extent of the Metazolites, but that are willing to enter into a, a dialogue in reason with the West, and how is that happening? Uh, the answer is yes, but they are very isolated. They're in dangerous situation, which is why many of them are here or in Canada or Europe. Um, working, I work with several institutions that try to work with Muslims like that to broaden uh, the impact of their thinking. And one result is uh, the Al-Musli website, almusli.org. It's the reformer in Arabic. And it's both in Arabic and English. So it would be A-L-M-U-S-L-I-H, Al-Musli. And you can go there and see what the Muslim intellectual reformers are saying. And it's, there's terrific material there. And they don't shy away from this. They say, we have to go back to the Mutazilite era and reopen these questions. And we have to examine the status of reason and, and see why we rejected reason and turned our backs on reason, why we extirpated philosophy from our civilization, why we committed intellectual suicide. There was a Muslim philosopher in Morocco, Al-Jabri, who died a couple of years ago, who famously said, either the future of Islam will be Aristotelian or Averroistic, or it will not be. Either we recover the capacity for critical thinking, or we can say goodbye. But they're very isolated, very dangerous, and the last thing that anybody, any Western government does, is help them. The last thing the United States has done is done anything for them. It's, it's a scandal. Mr. Riley, we have a message coming in online from Glenville, New York, um, mentioning that you, the naming of the animals that you were talking about. And he, and he asks, is the Genesis story in the Quran? And uh, if so, where did, they take, where did they get it? From Genesis. I mean, where, where did, again, where, where does most of the stuff in the Quran come from? It comes from the Bible. Yeah, but it comes in a distorted fashion. The genealogies are wrong. The, the sequences are wrong. Some of the, the names are wrong. Uh, but it's, it's, it's also uh, from the Gnostic Gospels, too. You can see that Muhammad got some of his material from there. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to ask you, how do they get um, St. Gabriel in, this, um, in the Quran um, as to talking to Muhammad? I mean, we just, you know, it just pops up. We're, and, I mean, Saint Gabriel, I mean, Saint is a, you know, this is a, a Christian Catholic. Right. But, so how does it come in? Well, Gabriel, first of all, Muhammad uh, thought he was having a demonic experience uh, because the first several encounters were extremely oppressive. He felt his chest was being crushed. He was commanded to write, and he kept saying, I can't write. Um, so he was suborned into this mission. Not, it was, it's a very different from Gabriel's appearance to Mary. Uh, Muhammad was in some kind of trance. Um, he reported to his wife, Hadija, he thought this was a demonic experience, and um, she told him that it wasn't. And uh, then finally... Uh, the command was changed to recite, and that's the Quran means the, the, the recital. And um, 
that, that was his experience. Some descriptions of Muhammad when he was going through this revelation describe what seemed like epileptic episodes. And uh, again, this Dr. Gerl Falkowitz describes the encounter of Gabriel as typical Oriental religion when your rational faculties are suspended and you're semi-conscious and you have this experience of the divine as opposed to Mary's experience with Gabriel in which she was troubled, but she wasn't overwhelmed, she wasn't semi-conscious, and obviously her rational faculties were engaged because she began asking Gabriel questions. You know, how can this be? And only after the question was answered was a rational assent given by Mary. So it's very two different Gabriels. Thank you very much, Professor. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for a wonderful presentation this evening. I just we hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.